Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City, all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazz World Report. In today's world, we live in very troubled times, and I'm specifically referring to the threat of ISIS, which I compare to a disease that is threatening civilized mankind as we know it. A few months ago, we had a great patriot on the show who spent 23 years in the armed special forces involved in foreign internal defense, counterinsurgency, and stability missions. He's served in the special ops for over 18 years and has been a Green Beret for over 15 years in combat deployments in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Panama, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He's going to share with us what we really need to know about ISIS and how it affects us and our families. He's a straight-shooting, no-nonsense kind of guy and someone who should be respected for his ability to simplify the complexity of the world of terror that exists today because his boots have been on the ground, no pun intended. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show the former Green Beret and the founder of the Stability Institute, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. Welcome back to the show, Scott. Hey, Vip. Thanks for having me, buddy. Well, you know what? We need your help in understanding what is going on with ISIS because the politicians always have a way of camouflaging what we really need to know. You know, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and now ISIS. What's the difference and why is it important? Because terror is terror as far as most people are concerned. Yeah, so uh, I appreciate, first of all, the opportunity to come on here, and it's always humbling uh, to talk about this stuff. And, And like you said before, you know, I want to throw it out there. There very much are boots on the ground right now, and frankly, you know, they're some of the finest boots in the world, and the men that are wearing them, um, and uh, they're they're in many cases all that stands between these guys and us. So, to, to roll right into your question, you know, uh, there are uh, a lot of terror groups out there right now that are making the news. Certainly, ISIS seems to be at the forefront. Mm. Um, but I know a lot of folks, they look at this and they scratch their heads and they just say, you know, I don't really know what to make of this. Everybody's kind of talking in circles. It's hard to understand. Uh, but, but what I will tell you is this, uh, Vip, all of these groups generally represent very similar goals. Uh, and, and, and at the epicenter of that is they really want to restore um, uh, a level of uh, rule and control that the uh, Islamic world once had. Uh, That land mass that they controlled all the way from Southwest Asia to parts of Europe uh, was called the Caliphate, and it was a a vast expanse of territory that was controlled uh, in the Muslim world. And in many ways, a lot of this is a desire to restore you know that not only that 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 landmass, but also that style of rule, that that hardcore Islamist fundamentalist rule of law. Um, you know, and to really beat back the West, who they see as the great Satan. Uh, so this is a this is a movement, uh, and it's a movement that has tremendous energy. And right now, at the forefront of that movement, you know, think of it almost as a foot race. For for relevance uh, in the extremist world, ISIS is at the is in the lead, uh, and they are they are really uh, they are really compelling and mobilizing much of the Islamic world to support them. I mean, these guys have a two billion dollar war chest, um, but but all of these groups are vying for the 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 popularity uh, and the support of of much of the Islamic world, and uh, they'll go to great lengths to get it. Well, you know, it seems that ISIS recently formed. I mean, I seem to have just sort of got up one day, and there they were. Uh, when did they form? 
Yeah, so they formed, uh, you know, they've only been around for a couple of years, and it was a, it was a very quiet emergence. I mean, these guys were actually an al-Qaeda offshoot. Uh, you know, the, the, the founder, uh, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, you know, really was, um, you know, he was an, he was an al-Qaeda affiliate. He was, he was, he was in our custody. Uh, and it was, it was just over a period of time after he was released that he started to kind of branch off and, and, and really, you know, he really pushed at, at, at a, at a local level to reestablish control uh, of, you know, the Islamic Caliphate uh, in, in Syria and Iraq. So he was seeking to, to reclaim, you know, really, really Sunni lost territory and was pushing very hard to do that at a local level. In some ways, you know, kind of quiet as we withdrew from Iraq, uh, he was really establishing himself. Uh, and, and as his movement, you know, gathered steam at a grassroots level, uh, that's when he started to assert himself on a more global level, on a, uh, with more global reach. But he, you know, he worked from the bottom up. Uh, he moved into those areas where Sunni tribes, uh, you know, many of them the tribes we once worked with during the Sons of Iraq, and and these are tribes that had been ostracized and pushed away by the Maliki government, who were Shias, mm -hmm. uh, and they had been, you know, they had been kind of outcast by the existing Iraqi government that we helped in. And you know what he did, Viv? He basically mobilized these ticked-off Sunni tribesmen uh, and gathered a base of support and energy and just continued to build on that. And now, you know, he has captured uh, a whole bunch of, uh, of, of hardware that, that we provided to the Iraqis. He's gained, he's made great strides in Syria, and frankly, uh, he's developing a following uh, all over the world for for relevance uh, as being again kind of the you know kind of the lead daddy rabbit in terms of extremism um, and and really making a play I think for for global reach. Well, America seems to be their first target in their global reach. What do ISIS want that America is not giving? Yeah, so in in a lot of ways, you know, um, the, these guys view. Um, um, America as as Satan. They they view America as not only infidels, but as 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 Satan. And they really seek to establish this caliphate, no matter what. And they and they see us as in the way of that. Uh, they see us as opposition to that. And, and I mean, the United States and the West. Also, don't forget that a lot of these governments. Let's, for example, let's just take Syria. A lot of these governments are, you know, autocratic governments, and by that I mean, you know, just a single ruler that 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 a Western country installed either after World War One or World War Two to basically keep the tribes at bay uh, and just keep things in check. But these were generally tin pot dictators, you know, ranging from Saddam Hussein uh, to Assad to Gaddafi. I mean, all of these guys were just autocrats who held an iron fist of control over the clans and tribes and just kind of kept things in check, and it allowed us to deal with those areas. But I thought, um, but I thought we were actually leaving the region. Well, so all no, of a sudden, not, not with really. all these I mean, beheadings... We've got a footprint in that region, no matter what happens, economically, you know, just, just with resources. I mean, we, we, we haven't really left that region, and, and I don't think that they believe that either. Um, and so where I was going with this is that they, they definitely view these governments as apostates, as infidel governments that have to go. They view us as supporting them, 
Uh, and so, therefore, you know, culpable for that. But they also view us as a direct obstacle to their restoration of greatness. And that for them to reestablish that level of greatness, we have to be destroyed. We are literally the manifestation of evil in their eyes. What do you think the administration don't know about ISIS? Well, here's, here's a few things that I, I think that the administration is missing about ISIS. Mm. First, I think they're only now starting to take these guys seriously. And remember the last time you and I had a conversation, I think I said something to the effect of these are the guys that make empty threats. Um, you know, these guys mean what they say. They say what they mean. They mean what they say. Right. And, and, and just, just out of honor, they're going to follow through with the things they say. So, so one of the problems is, is that I think the Obama administration is just now starting to take these guys seriously. Well, guess what? That's been months of an unchecked border. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been months of basically allowing these guys to run roughshod all over Iraq and Syria. Uh, and so they have established and, and basically established a global narrative that has mobilized much of the Islamic world in their favor, uh, or at least certain elements of it. So that's one problem, is that we're just now kind of coming into the game. Number two, I think that the administration really thinks that these limited airstrikes are going to somehow keep these guys at bay. And I will tell you that these are mostly going to be tactical victories that we achieve. Uh, they're, they're really what is not a tactical to... victory? What is it for, for the benefit of our listeners? Okay, so like a localized victory. If you take out a weapons depot or even a command and control node, uh, the impact on the overall strategic reach of ISIS is going to be minimal. Right. You know, it's really not going to have a strategic effect. It's going to be more of a tactical effect that might limit their ability uh, to maneuver for a little while. But it's really not. It's, it's more like a jab punch instead of a right cross. Um, and and in doing that, though, what it really serves to do is it mobilizes, uh, you know, an honor-based clan society for revenge. Uh, it gives it gives ISIS the fuel they need to look at their Islamic base and say, see, we told you these guys were attacking Islam. We told you that they were coming for you. And look, this is what's happening. Now, what are you going to do about it? And so it enables them to basically take a narrative that they were already putting out there, which is that the West is attacking uh, Islam, it's attacking tribal Islam, and then these limited strikes happen, and they can point at them and say, okay, I told you, now let's go. And already ISIS is putting calls out on social media right now for lone wolf attacks against civilian and military inside the United States as you know based on these uh, escalating attacks i don't think that we're really realizing what the repercussions of these limited airstrikes are going to be on our national security you know these airstrikes are very similar to drive-bys call them flybys um, our strategy is actually very predictable from the world they they know we're going to be doing this sort of thing so my question is, if it's predictable, and, and ISIS seem to be very intelligent, they would have left the building, so to speak. So these sort of the, the attacks, these tactical maneuvers that we do, um, they're not really affecting their no. strength. No, let me just let me just read you one line right here from uh, a gentleman named Abu Muhammad Adnani who posted. He's an ISIS guy, and he posted a, a basically a call out to uh, lone wolf 
uh, fighters to attack uh, us at home. Mm. But here was his message to the United States based on the Syria attack in Syria. Mobilize your forces. Roar with thunder. Threaten whom you want. Plot. Arm your troops. Prepare your planes. Strike. Kill and destroy us. This will not avail you. You will pay the price when this crusade of yours collapses, and thereafter we will strike you in your homeland, and you will never be able to harm anyone afterward. They know exactly what our playbook is. They know how we're going to respond, and they count on that to mobilize their narrative that Islam is under attack from the West. So we're adding fuel to their fire. Absolutely. And... And that's what I think is the biggest misunderstanding of this administration, is that what is going on here is that ISIS, al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, al-Shabaab, they understand how to move and operate in these damaged clan societies where extremism grows and thrives. Remember, these are societies where most governments can't reach. They're not effective. So in the absence of that, you have a clan or a tribe that handles things. And in most of those areas, those systems have been degraded and and worn down, often by the very extremists that are now co-opting them. So they come into these areas where honor and shame is a essential part of life, and they take these young men where the traditional systems have failed them. There is no responsible leadership, and they mobilize these young men along the lines of honor and shame, and they send them into the world, and they're very effective at it. And they do this at a community level, one village at a time. Those simmering, festering grievances, they're able to spin them off in those directions and use honor to get them to do their bidding. When we come from the top like this at 30,000 feet, dropping precision munitions that really aren't that precise, we mobilize that narrative. You're a man with the ear on the ground. After the beheadings, what do you think would be their next step? Well, you know, what I... What they're going to run out of hostages. Yeah, so, so here's what I worry about, is, is that what you're seeing with ISIS, there's a couple of things that we need to take note of. Mm. One is they have, a, they have a real tendency for very overt, audacious violence. They make violence very personal, um, and they know they are masters at social media. They have evolved well past what al-Qaeda was doing. So they're very eager to, to take these, these, these beheadings, these killings, and, and use social media to bring it right into your face. I, I think what we have to watch now as we start to do these limited airstrikes in Syria is that the next level they try to take this is they try to bring it here. They try to bring that close interpersonal violence that makes you feel like they're everywhere, they bring it here. And if you look at the call-outs that they're doing to lone wolves, if you look at the number of fighters that have left the United States, that have left uh, the West and gone over to Syria, they have plenty to choose from. And it would not be hard uh, for these guys to pull off these kinds of things here in the U.S., at least in the beginning. Uh, and, and so that's, that's on one end of the spectrum. That's what I worry about. But I've got to tell you, Vip, for the amount of time that the border has been unsecured and the amount of time and the amount of access that these guys have to chemical weapons and other nasty things, you know, there's the other end of the spectrum where a spectacular attack is not beyond the pale either.
Well, there's one which is a spectacular attack, and then there's another one that, where there's a spectacular action, which these beheadings were, were done on their soil. Yeah. Do you think they'll try and attempt this on U.S. soil? I absolutely do. I, I absolutely do. I think not only, you know, they're calling for it now. I mean, they are calling for it now. And if you think about, for example, the British soldier that was hacked to death right outside his base, um, you know, uh, not that long ago by extremists mm. on camera, um, I think that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, I think you're, I think there is a uh, a pretty strong call out coming to uh, to gain retribution against uh, soldiers, military men, their families, um, where they live. I think that's the next level, and I think you're going to see uh, probably some attempts at again very audacious personal levels of violence here in the U.S. that are captured on video, but they want to do it here. They want to bring it home uh, because, you know, think about it. If you, can, if you can mobilize the United States into airstrikes off of two YouTube videos by beheading a few journalists in Syria, what happens if you do it here? What will be the response then? How would we react after the well, attack of the homeland? I, you know, in the book I'm writing, uh, Game Changers, mm. uh, in chapter one, I actually, I actually spell out how I think we'll react, um, you know, to this thing, and it's very predictable. Again, if you look, um, if you look at the language of Adnani, he was very clear about what what we will do. He, you know, it's a template, um, and I believe that you know uh, attacks that it, that happen here in the homeland would probably garner an emotional collective response from our citizenry. There would be an outcry for retribution and payback. Uh, you know, in a, in a Reader's Digest kind of way, I believe the flags would come out on the balconies again, like 9-12 after the attacks. Uh, I believe you'd start to see the yellow ribbons coming out and, a, you know, a, a real coming together, or at least a perceived coming together of how we're going to go get these guys. And then we would load our young men and women up, and we would, we would redeploy into theater, uh, and we would begin a concerted footprint to, to, uh, to avenge that, that attack. The problem is that we really don't, I don't think, have, unless it was a really bad attack, I don't think we have the appetite for total war. I think it would quickly devolve into a very limited engagement with a large footprint where we, where we become occupiers, not liberators. Uh, we're very limited in who we can target and what we can target, and pretty soon we start trying to build wells and schools and, and basically win them over to democracy, and the whole thing starts over again. Uh, and it fuels that fire even further. More blood, more treasure, and uh, we get sucked in. And, and that's, that's the typical response, and I don't see anything that tells me it would be any different than that. Where does ISIS get the funding for all of this? Well, you know, uh, they, they get a lot of donors. You know, they, they mobilize, you know, a lot of, a lot of money. Uh, a, lot, a lot of folks anonymously donate uh, from the Middle Eastern states. Uh, to this, I mean, there are there are there are, there are a lot of folks that donate to that. They they make money through kidnapping, you know, battlefield acquisition. Look at the equipment that they're driving around in. I mean, they've acquired a huge war chest just in terms of relevant equipment that that belonged to the Iraqi army that they just captured. Um, so uh, they they co-opt local communities. 
Um, you know, they tie into the local economy, uh, a range of places, just like your transnational criminals. I mean, look in Latin America. I mean, look at the various income streams that they develop, both uh, uh, legitimate and illegitimate. Is the U.S. coordinating with Assad? Because, you know, the, uh, the government insists there is zero cooperation with Syria's government, but Syria says that the Secretary of State, John Kerry, sent them a secret letter explaining their actions, and he's hinted at some sort of a implicit cooperation. Um, Serious claims may well be a lie designed to make, I guess, Assad look powerless, but there certainly um, seems to be some sort of implicit cooperation as the American and Syrian forces avoiding shooting at one another. Well, I don't know if it started out that way, but it very well could have evolved into some type of collaboration with Assad, because if you think about it, you know, we're, we're definitely between a, a diplomatic rock and a hard place, aren't we? Um, you know, the, uh, the supposed rebels in many of these cases um, that we should be working with, you know, um, are turning out to be violent extremists mm. that are worse than anything that Assad uh, could, ever, could ever present. And this brings me to a very important point, Vip, and I want to take a second to talk about this. Yeah, you, you asked earlier, you know, what is the Obama administration missing? And this is another key point that I hope that your listeners will dial into right now. It is absolutely imperative that we embrace the realities of the places where we go and intervene. We have to first understand the history and the environment of these places before we go in and break things and kill people. That is absolutely essential, and we have not done that. The Arab Spring is a, is a perfect example of, 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 a, of a policy of an administration that got caught up in a movement that, frankly, changed the entire landscape of the Middle East, and not necessarily for the better. Were these guys like Gaddafi and Assad and the, 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 the ruler of Yemen bad guys? Of course they were. they were. They were pretty nasty guys. But what they did was they maintained a level of relative stability that kept violent extremism at bay. And when we, when we unseated these tin-pot autocrats, we unearthed basically uh, decades and decades of suppressed tribal revenge uh, and vengeance. Uh, and it opened the doors for all of that stuff to come flooding in. And then, after we help unseat those things, we step back and say, uh, we're really not going to get involved here. And it's kind of a you-break-it-you-buy-it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So if we are dealing with Assad, and we very well could be, it's because I think in the very beginning a lot of these things we didn't think them through. Because often when you when you pull the thread on something, you don't know what you're going to get. Uh, and thinking forward to those second- and third-order effects is really critical. Uh, and I think Americans have to start to wake up to this and, and start to demand this of our policymakers and leaders as we roll into this next election. So is it wise then to arm the rebels? Because when, you know, with the Syrian rebels, when we know they're going to turn on us, uh, because it's like lending your neighbor a lawnmower, uh, knowing that he won't return it. Yeah, that's a great question. A buddy of mine, uh, Philip Carr, who I grew up with in Arkansas, sent me a question like that the other day. And he asked me, he said, why are we arming these guys? And, and I'll tell you, um, you know, it, it, does, it does have a lot of risk to it. But, but here's the way that I come at this, Vip, and, and my experience of working with local indigenous people for over two decades, really, mostly in Afghanistan over the last decade, is that working with locals actually is effective in many cases when you're dealing with a group like ISIS, mm. who, who their, whole, their whole focus, 
their whole success, their strategic success depends on their ability to work with the Sunni tribes, these ostracized, uh, pushed-out tribesmen, then working with local Sunni tribes and other clans and ethnic groups in the area makes a lot of sense. But the way you do it, you don't just pull them out of the area, arm them, and then say, have a good time storming the castle. You know, it, it, there, is a, there is a level of responsible oversight that is implied for our advisors. And, and things like no boots on the ground uh, is a really bad start to that. We should work with these local community members, these tribesmen, up close and personal. We should embed in their communities. We should work with them to identify their resilient leaders and get back on their feet and reclaim their traditional society. And then in a way that's locally appropriate, they bring in their local fighters, their local defenders, and we help them do that responsibly so that if they do start to go rogue, if they do become predatory on the community, then we can step in. And it's a very long, arduous, ugly process, but it is effective and it does work. We saw this work in Afghanistan from 2009 to 2012 very effectively. It was too late in the war, but it works. And we've seen it work in El Salvador, Philippines, and other places. Okay, let me ask you this. Do you think, talking about boots on the ground, do you think our army is capable of fighting ISIS on the ground? Uh, considering the considering the weather, the terrain, um, do they have the expertise? Our military is capable of dealing with an organization like ISIS, but it's like anything else. Mm. You have to you have to choose the right items off the menu. Just taking the entire United States Army and plopping it down in Syria and Iraq. Uh, and riding around in, in futuristic-looking armored vehicles does not solve the problem. We have to use a very specialized surgical uh, approach. We have U.S. Navy SEALs and other commandos that are very well suited to go after these guys kinetically, in other words, using lethal means that, you know, is surgical. We also have U.S. Army Green Berets. Mm -hmm. These are special forces guys. This is what I did that are trained in language, culture. They're basically modern-day Lawrence of Arabia. I remember from the last show, you said you guys are first in, last out. Absolutely. And these guys are there now. They can go in in a broader capacity. They can work with the Sunni tribes. They can work with the Shia. They can work with the Kurds. And they can work from the bottom up to help stabilize these local communities, these traditional communities, to stand on their own. And then when the time is right and when they establish uh, a level of stability at the community level, they can work with these traditional leaders and walk them back to the government in a way that is locally appropriate and sustainable. And again, it takes time. This is not a quick fix. So we will have to employ, you know, seals and drones and other things to keep the, the, the irreconcilables at bay. But within the context of that broader strategy, that bottom-up approach, you basically re-empower traditional civil society to stand back on its own feet. There are a lot of people, I'll tell you this, Vip, there's a lot of people in these places that don't want ISIS, that don't want al-Qaeda, that don't want Boko Haram. They want their traditional society back, they want their children back, and they will stand up. But they've got to be you know, empowered to do that, and it starts at a local level. How would you, if you had control, what, who would you send in first? Because our army is made up of different layers. Yeah, so I, you know, certainly I would, I, would, I, would, I would start by 
I would start by naming this operation and give it a name. I would start by getting a status of forces agreement mm. that protects our guys from the host nation government that they're actually supporting. Right. Um, and I would start pushing in U.S. Army Special Forces to work with both the Iraqi military as well as irregular Iraqi groups like the Sunnis. And I would, I would quickly work to... Uh, do a mea culpa with the Sunni tribes that we abandoned when we left at, uh, Iraq after the uh, Sons of Iraq program and the awakening. We basically left those guys high and dry. And I would really emphasize getting into the Sunni areas that are still resisting ISIS. There are Sunni tribes we have that a are trust standing issue. up against ISIS. We have a trust issue, don't we? Yeah. With the tribes? Well, we have a trust issue in a lot of places. You're right. Um, but again, you can you know that's that's not insurmountable. You know, a trust is something that can be reestablished, and it's something that's going to have to be reestablished. Uh, we we can no, we cannot uh, check out and and just watch what happens in the Middle East with groups like ISIS. It's going to come home. Mm. So we're going to have to engage, and we're going to have to regain lost trust. And you do that by putting the right guys at the community level, at the clan level, and you work from the bottom up. You still have to, you know, you still have to work with the governments and the State Department and all those things, but, but we have to acknowledge that a large chunk of the land, VIP, in these places is governed by clan and tribe. Uh, and that means putting, you know, Green Berets and other advisors out in those rough areas and let them work from the bottom up. And, and, and they're going to have to help rebuild trust. The leadership needs to acknowledge that that's going on, acknowledge the importance of those tribes, and be there when the guys ask for the top cover, you know, and be there to offer those mea culpas, to be there to reestablish and, and convince the Shia leadership in Iraq to reach out to the Sunnis. There's going to have to be reconciliation there, uh, and we need to work that from both directions. I want to talk about um, ISIS at home, mm-hmm. in, in the homeland. Are our borders capable of preventing ISIS from entering through, say, Canada or Mexico? Uh, I, I certainly do not think they are capable of preventing ISIS from entering through the south. Um, I, you know, Canada may be a little bit better, mm. uh, but the poorest border along the southern United States, uh, I am absolutely convinced, is wide open, or at least has been wide open, for ISIS to shoot the gap. And I believe they probably have. And again, um, I don't have any reporting to back that up. That is, you know, a couple of decades of, of being an operator and just looking at the facts and, and doing good assessments. Well, you're talking from opinion and experience. Yeah, and, and seeing that they have, they have, the, they have the will they have the capacity, they have the audacity. And you know what else? Here's the other thing, Vip. There's a competition going on right now between ISIS and al-Qaeda on, on, on who's the hippest, baddest terror group on the block, right? I mean, they are, they are literally punking each other out on who's the most relevant terror group. And they're vying for the support of the Islamic Ummah, the base, you know, and they, and they, they are working hard to prove who's the most relevant to establish the caliphate and lead the Islamic world. Either way, in that little battle or that big battle, we lose, because the place they're going to try to prove that is here. Now, there's also a new new uh, entry to the group, right? Khorasan? Yeah, so Khorasan, in which, you know, these, these Yemeni 
this Yemeni-based group of bomb makers. The interesting thing about uh, about Khorasan um, is that uh, you know that actually is a reference uh, from uh, from a hadith, an Islamic hadith that I actually use in chapter two to start my book off. It's a, it's a fairly dated hadith, but it says, when you see the black banners coming from Khorasan, join that army. Even if you have to crawl over ice, no power will be able to stop them, and they will finally reach Jerusalem, where they will erect their flags. The black banners will come from the east, led by military men with long hair and long beards. Their surnames are taken from the names of their hometowns. You know, this stuff is not new, and Khorasan really stands for you know the Afghanistan Pakistan area and it really emphasizes most of these guys are former Afghan fighters mm. uh, it, it's it, it we need to remember that Afghanistan still plays a very important role in all this uh, and that that al-qaeda is not out of this fight no they're actually competing right they're absolutely competing and they will not you know they're not going to just lay down uh, you know we don't need to dismiss what al-qaeda is capable of uh, you know, the fact that this group went to Syria to try to lash up with Westerners and United States and fighters from the United States because of their access and placement back here, we need to wake up. You know, my message to all of your listeners, Vip, is that both of these groups are actively competing for relevance in the Islamic world, and they are both committed to proving that relevance here in the homeland. Talking about relevance, let's talk about recruitment. Um, that's one of the things I'm waking up to is that they seem to be getting the message to the Muslim youth of America and the United Kingdom. Uh, because if you look at the videos, the killers are from the West. Does that yeah. mean that there's obviously a growing movement at home that needs to be addressed? Does that mean we start scrutinizing the mosques or, or start watching the community even more closely? Well, we have to we have to first understand the movement that's underway. You know, it, it all gets back to, you know, one of my major premises that I try to push is to first embrace the local realities of what you're looking at. You know, you know, you got to understand the environment that that you're dealing with. In special operations forces, we call it the first soft imperative is to uh, understand your operational environment. So what is really going on here? How are they able to mobilize these young men? And if you look at it, you know, one of the big things that's going on here is that they're able to leverage this concept of honor and shame. Uh, and many of these men that they are able to recruit are men who have lost honor. You know, they, they come from a background uh, where their society is really degraded, and it's very difficult to achieve uh, honor and status in their society, which is everything uh, in a clan-based society, whether that's West L.A. with Crips and Bloods, or whether that's clans over in Somalia that go all the way back to Minneapolis. Mm. Um, you know, so understanding the society and what a role that honor and shame plays there and how these guys expertly go in at a personal level and they basically they basically pull the threads zip on these simmering grievances that directly tie to that young man's honor to his shame and they mobilize him and recruit him in that regard so we've got to get smarter on how these guys recruit not just where they recruit but how they do it and i don't think that we can get away from addressing the societal issues that are exploited by these guys because in most cases my experience has been that the security problem is actually symptomatic of a much deeper 
deeper issue. Most of these places where they recruit, civil society is in bad shape. Whether it's agriculture, there's not enough food, uh, or whether there's dispute resolution, you know they can't solve their, you know they can't solve their disputes because all the elders are dead. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of decay, right. and so we're it's going to have to be, you know, we're going to have to work together. It's not just a matter of going in with law enforcement or military. There, there are a lot of grievances that are going to have to be addressed as well. Well, the way I'm, the, what I'm taking away from this is that the moment we kill their families, their mothers, their daughters, uh, their, their, their fathers, um, they have nothing to live for. So as a result, they're willing to offer their life, which is probably one of the most dangerous weapons in war. Well, if you think about what it takes to, you know, to, if you think about what it takes to convince someone to basically give their life over to any cause mm. uh, and to give it over violently... Um, I mean, that's a pretty, that in itself is a very profound thing. Um, but, but what I'm, I guess what I'm encouraging that we have to do is we have our different agencies that we have, uh, our nonprofits, we all have to kind of put our heads together and really look at these areas where the recruiting is taking place and ask ourselves, what are the conditions? What are the grievances? What are the social issues that are allowing this kind of, uh, this kind of ex- exploitation to occur? Uh, and it doesn't mean this isn't a kumbaya group hug kind of thing. I mean, there are irreconcilables that have to be killed and, and detained. I get it. Uh, but if we don't understand and empathize with the local conditions that allow these guys to come in and exploit these kids, then we will always be on the outside looking in. We will never be relevant to this game. Uh, and again, that's one of my main messages in Game Changers is that we have to understand the game that's being played. It's not the industrial age model of statecraft that we're used to. There is a level of recruiting and mobilization that's going on at the community level that we're not even dialed into. And when we're saying things like no boots on the ground, that tells me we're not even in a stadium. We're not even in the same stadium with these guys. Talking about the game, Game Changers, what is it about? Is that the full title of your book, by the way? It is, yeah. That's the title. That's that. The, the, the book is Game Changers, uh, uh, and uh, how to defeat a new way to defeat violent extremism. Um, and 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 what this book is really about is understanding that the game that we are playing against violent extremists has already changed. They've already changed the game, and and they are they are winning. Uh, and this book is about taking the lessons we learned, special forces specifically, uh, and, and some other special operators, in the dusty villages of Afghanistan from 2009 to 2012, we figured out a way to change the game. It was very fleeting, it, and it only lasted a couple of years, uh, but we, we found it. And we found a way to deal with these guys at their level, in their communities, and render them irrelevant, irrelevant in the eyes of the locals. Um, and it worked. And, and this book is about how to take those lessons and bring them into not only places like Iraq and Syria, but also into the inner cities of the United States and even into the business world uh, where you know, corporations and others are working in, uh, in, in places like Africa to get communities to support their actions rather than fight them. So who should be reading it? Well, I, you know, of course I'm going to say everybody, but, but let me tell you why I say that. You know, I, when I wrote the book, mm. uh, it was really for anybody that is having to deal with, with 
you know, issues in Syria, Iraq, and Africa. It was written, you know, initially for military and special ops and USAID and State Department who see that what we're doing is not working and need to change something. That's who it was initially written for. But as I got into it and I started to research and see how many Americans are just fed up with what they're seeing going on abroad and, and frankly, worried about the, the, you know, the security of their families, they, but they don't really they're – not, they're not getting the straight story on what's going on. No, and we're not. I we're think, not getting the straight story from the politicians at all. No, I, I don't think they are, Vip. And this book, this book really provides that. It breaks down how the extremists do what, what they want, first of all, and then it breaks down how they do what they do at a very local level. Uh, and I use Afghanistan as the as the petri dish, mm. and then I show basically how Green Berets went in and turned the tides very late in the war, and how this could be done in other countries. So, you know, any American that's worried about national security, uh, I think, will benefit. And again, private sector folks would definitely get something out of this. Uh, there's a different way to do corporate activities abroad, and uh, again, we're fall- they're, they're falling into the same traps, the same industrial mindset as the military. Well, quite recently, I think um, there was. This didn't make headline news, but ISIS destroyed the Armenian genocide church in Dazor as Armenia was celebrating its twenty-three, I think, twenty-third year of independence. So well, it's it, it's moving from individuals to icons of religion, like a church. You better believe this is yeah. This is a this is a this is a global threat, and everybody has a stake in it. Uh, and so anyone who 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 sees this, anyone who sees that this is a rapidly evolving threat, and, and in our time, in our lifetime, uh, this thing is going to get this thing is going to get worse. Um, and so anybody that has that concern and that thinks we need to change the game, I would definitely definitely encourage them to take a look at the book because I think it'll open their eyes to what's going on. And you know, frankly, I can't stand it when people stand around. With their hands in pockets and just say it's broken. You know, this offers some practical solutions that our men fought, bled, and in some cases died for in the deserts of Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, we sure don't need to be boxing those up in the attic. We need to learn from them. All the more relevance in today's times for your Stability Institute, right. I think. So how are you working with these new developments that are constantly evolving every week? Well, you know, we started this I started the Stability Institute VIP when I was getting ready to retire from special forces because what happened was our guys, our Green Berets, our SEALs, um, our Marines that were going out to these Afghan villages, what they discovered was pretty striking. What they learned when they were living in these villages for like a year at a time was that most of the things that the Taliban uh, were were mobilizing the villagers on were things like food insecurity, mm. dispute resolution, tribal tribal feuds, and so we didn't know anything about those things. And what we discovered was if we were living and working among the local folks, and we had a, a, a good understanding of what the local issues were, we were much better suited to help them stand up on their own against extremism. And you know what? They did. In less than one year, we went from less than one. 100 local defenders to 15,000 across Afghanistan. So this local knowledge is what we started the Stability Institute to promote. So now in places like Syria 
and Iraq and East Africa, while most of the nation is focused on how are we going to overthrow the regime, uh, how do we do the airstrikes, we're looking at things like what are the drought conditions like there, how do the Sunnis feel about the Shia, what's the tribal history, and we're looking for that kind of information that we can pass to the practitioners who are on the ground, because that local knowledge, starting from T.E. Lawrence all the way to today, when you can demonstrate local knowledge of an area, people take you serious and you can get some stuff done. Well, is Washington taking you seriously? You know, I don't think they are. Um, I, we've tried. You know, we continue to. You know, we're not giving up. We've got a great board of advisors. Uh, we've got some really old school uh, folks who have been working in Afghanistan since the 70s. Counter terror experts. We're not giving up, but but we, they haven't heard us yet. And my hope is that game changers and some other initiatives and things like my conversations with you will get people to listen to us because because the policies we're putting in now are not. They're, not only are they not working. They're putting the homeland at risk, and uh, and and you know we should have learned more from Iraq and Afghanistan at a policy level than what we did. And to go back and do the same thing over again, frankly, in my opinion, Vip, it's shameful. Thanks for all. Thanks for sharing everything, uh, Scott. Uh, it's very profound. Well, I appreciate um, it. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and and talk about this. And you know, for me, you know, there's so many of of my brothers that didn't make it home. Uh, that gave everything, and, and then others that are still over there right now, uh, as we're saying, no boots on the ground. Their boots are on the ground, and, and they're on their 10th, 11th deployment. And, uh, you know, for me, I mean, I owe it to them to be straight about this. So I just appreciate the chance to talk about it. And I appreciate you being straight about it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. That was the insightful Green Beret Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann giving a boots-on-the-ground version of ISIS and what it means to all of us. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswell and my Facebook page, The Vip Jaswell Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a safe, productive, and a happy week ahead.